Well, hi everybody and welcome to another episode of the Godcast. Now, where do you go when you have a sore throat, when you need <laughs> some help and some assistance? Where better could you go than to find a doctor? Well, I've got one of the best with us on the Godcast today. We've got Dr. David Bull. Now, David is a medical doctor. He's a, f- a very well-known broadcaster and writer, television presenter, a man of many talents. David, welcome to the Godcast. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, Alex. That sounds like a fantastic introduction. So thank you for that. You know, it's um, when, I, when I was looking at your resume, David, it's very difficult to know quite where <laughs> because, because you've done so much, haven't you? You you really have got a very broad CV. Uh, I was wondering, uh, do you pick and choose now to do what you enjoy rather than what you have to do? Do you know, um, that's sort of my mantra for the entirety of my life, actually. Uh, Life is very short and you have to make the most of it. And I think uh, I'm very lucky that I can do that. Uh, And many of my friends are stuck in jobs they don't really like doing. Um, And in fact, actually, that underpins everything I did. I wanted to be a doctor. I went to medical school, became a doctor. And that transition then into broadcasting was really because... I saw the need to educate children because I didn't want to pick them up at the end of the day when they were sick. I wanted to empower them. And so that was how it all started by writing to John Craven, he of Newsdown fame. And um, and really that's how it started. And I thought it would last about a year in television or I gave myself a year to do it. And 25 years later, <laughs> I'm still there. But you know, look, the, the great thing about this is uh, it is uh, variable. Every day is different. I have no idea what's happening. And, um, but, but some people, I don't think could cope with that because there is no security. You don't really get job contracts. So you, you have to balance that um, and you have to make hay whilst the sun shines. How, how long is it since you actually worked in medicine, David? Um, Well, that's a very good question. I'm actually fully licensed and registered still, and that's because of the government's COVID rollout. Um, So so in terms of working in the NHS, a long time ago now, but in terms of providing public health information today. Yeah. Uh, Would you you go back on a ward? Would you go back into a GP? You're a GP, that right? No, no, I was an accident and emergency doctor. Um, I think I think it was the level of high drama that I enjoyed. Um, <laughs> but um, actually, I have given it really uh, serious consideration about whether I would go back. It, it's become very difficult. If you have a media profile, and I have done this, and I went back and did locums in A&E, it just becomes such an incredible distraction because the patients aren't really sure whether you're the doctor or whether you're filming a reality show. And um, and then the staff are all very intrigued by the whole thing. So um, I think I think also in terms of medical education, continuing medical education, you have to stay up to date. Uh, and whilst I have a certain level of knowledge, I think you'd have to be super specialised and there would be a transition period. I'd have to go back and and retrain, really, I think. And um, uh, and actually, at the moment, whilst television uh, is, is a great a job for me and I'm also obviously a politician as well um, my job actually I see it now as to reform and improve the NHS which is quite frankly uh, not fit for purpose needs radical reform and we need to stop holding it up and saying it's the envy of the world because it isn't yeah I'm going to come to the end of NHS in a moment David well when you when you had to make that decision between leaving that that medical profession and joining something else was that difficult for you did it take a lot of soul searching or, or, or was it no i've got to do this 
Yeah, it did actually. Um, but but you see, I, I'm a great believer there. Are, you can think with two ways. You either think with your head or your heart. And for me, this was a heart driven feeling and it's something I wanted to do and I wanted to prove to myself I could do it. But I set very clear parameters around it. So I gave myself a year to see if I could do it. And uh, and I did. And uh, and then I kept going. Now, actually, it wasn't me that had the biggest issue with this. It was my bosses. And I had a particularly un a consultant who was very much on side all the way through my training uh, at a London teaching hospital. And he basically uh, told me that I was an idiot and that he would ensure I never work in medicine again because of the choice I made. So I said to him, well, that's all very good then, because I know I'm right in what I'm doing. Yeah. And you never regretted it. Um, so um, I'm 53 now and all my friends are consultants. They're all very clever. They've got lots of letters after their name. We have dinner parties. And there are moments when I think, gosh, I wish I'd carried on that career because at least I would have known what I would be, if that makes sense. And But, but you can only regret the things you've never done. So no, absolutely not. And interestingly, all my friends who are doctors and consultants and GPs, they're all miserable. They're bored. And they see my life as being exciting and energetic. Now, obviously, both jobs are are incredibly uh, worthy, but the grass is always greener, isn't it? Yeah, well, it may be. I mean, my my, my wife and I don't I don't want to talk about it too much, but she's an advanced nurse practitioner, and uh, she effectively is a is a phone phone operator at the moment. All she does is take telephone calls, right? And, and that's not really why she went in to the profession you know she finds it quite boring very mundane um and you know the, the the nhs as you just mentioned is is broken in many ways do you, do you think it's beyond repair david and, it, and if not where where would the starting point be for you as no a, yeah no i no i don't think it's beyond repair but but you, the thing is as you know in your profession you have to admit there's a problem uh, to solve any problem. And at the moment, we have this ridiculous uh, fiasco where, where politicians of all parties say, well, it's the envy of the world, it's marvellous. Well, actually, it's not. When you look at the outcomes, if you look at our cancer survival rates, we're well below uh, Europe, we're well below uh, much of the rest of the world. In fact, I was just looking at a league table this morning where we come out, I think, 25th. Uh, which is which is shocking. Now it's not also it's not about money because we spent 176 billion last year with another 35 billion on top. So we're putting in tons of money at the top. It's just not reaching the bottom. So we need to have a very grown up conversation about what the NHS should be. For me, I think it needs to remain free at the point of need. I think that's really important because that then ensures that you have a level playing field and everyone can access those services. The question is. Why, why are, is 48%, for example, of the, of the staff budget goes on non-clinicians? That is nutty. Why have we got all these managers? And every time you have a target, you need someone to measure the target. And you would have heard that from your wife. The whole thing is utterly insane. We need to relook at the way the structure of the NHS. But remember, it is also such a complicated beast because it is uh, the third largest employer in the world behind the Indian um, National Railway and the Chinese People's Army. Um, and to turn it around is a colossal problem. Plus, we have an aging population, you've got social care issues. Also, uh, there was a, an article the other day by a doctor saying there are 50 forms you have to fill in to discharge a patient. So if I was to discharge a patient at nine o'clock in the morning, they won't leave the ward till four in the afternoon. All that's got to go. We need to have some radical reform in there 
say to the public, what services do you want the NHS to provide? Um, should it be all things to all men? Should it be core services? Should we encourage people to take out private health care if they can afford it and give you a, a tax break on that? I think there are lots of things we can look at and look at other systems around the world. Yeah. Who, who takes responsibility for that, David? I mean, uh, I'm part of an institution. Uh, the Church of England, where, you know, everybody points the finger at the Archbishop of Canterbury, but <laughs> as, he, as he often says, you know, I can't change anything or, or very little. You know, it, it's got to go through body after body. You know, do you, do you think we put too much uh, responsibility on the on the health secretary, for example? Do you, do you think there's mm. joint responsibility? And do you think we should have some grown-up conversations where, you know, I, I do think it with politics, we, it becomes a battle quite often. And we, we lose the ability to talk and discuss. That's why I'm a big fan of, of the radio station we'll talk about in a moment. But but well, just a few thoughts on that, David. I've said quite a lot there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing is, it's so partisan. And we, what we really need is a strategic 20-year plan, which is cross-party. And it goes back to the Secretary of State for Health, who isn't a doctor, isn't a nurse, hasn't got any medical training. That, to me, is insane as well, because you have to understand how those clinical pathways work. And most of my colleagues will tell you they are so frustrated by the system that that is the reason they leave. And it's all very well the opposition lobbing grenades at the government saying, you know, you're not funding it appropriately. Actually, the funding is good, but the, but the management in the middle is shoddy. And also what we've done, and this is the bit I can't really understand. When I qualified, the NHS was pretty much a single entity. And then we broke off into individual trusts. The trusts now became individual trusts. Then they started buying each other and became super trusts. And we're almost back to where we started. But lots of people have made lots of gain out of it. So that makes no sense as well. So another thing, for example, general practitioners, they don't work for the NHS. They're self-employed. And many people don't realise that. And so there is a uh, an incentive to make money at the end of the day. That then goes to the shareholders. I think there's a very good argument to say we bring all GPs, all new GPs back in under the umbrella of the NHS. And whilst we do that, I want money to go into social care because the way we treat elderly people in this country is appalling. Yeah. And just and just broadening that social care aspect out, David, uh, I, I work in a parish of quite severe urban deprivation and uh, I, I've been invited to a, a call with the NHS to discuss what it is the NHS can do to build uh, better relationships with the communities that they're part of. We we have horrendous problems with addiction around here. Mm. I mean, really extreme uh, levels of poverty. And uh, I I think you're you're a politician, so I think it's fair to ask the question: Where do we start with the nation's problem of of, of addiction? It is it is quite horrific, and I see it on a daily basis. And, and frankly, it's quite heartbreaking. It really is. And of course, I've been there. I've been in tower blocks in central London dealing with addicts. And as you know, it is incredibly difficult to get people off drugs once they've started. But we, again, this is about having an open and honest conversation that clearly the current legislation doesn't work. The risk stratification. So as you know, the drugs are classified into various categories. The government brought in a, a chap called David Nutt, Professor Nutt, to look at the categories and to work out whether they were fit for purpose. He reported back to the government saying they were not fit for purpose. Government didn't like what they heard and fired him. So that is another example of what we are doing incorrectly. I think there is a very strong case to decriminalise drug use because by doing that, you remove the black market overnight, you remove drug gangs, you remove violence, you remove all of those things. The county lines would disappear because you wouldn't need them. 
but it also does one other thing, which it allows people to seek help. And at the moment, you can't do that because you're breaking the law. Yeah. So, so I would look at all of those those things. But also, if you look at drugs generally, if you look at the risk and the most harm caused by any drug, if you were to ban one drug, the drug you'd ban is alcohol. Yeah, I agree. I, I, uh, I don't. Well, I can plug my book. It's my my God's book. <laughs> but in my book, there's a character called Mark, a true story, David, who is an alcoholic, and uh, not seen him for a few weeks. I bumped into him a few days ago. And he, and he said to me, do you know what, Alex? I don't even know if I want to get clean. I don't know if I want to get clean. And I said, why? He said, because I'm, I'm frightened what's on the other side. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in a place of kind of, I know where I'm going to be. I know I'm going to manage. I know I've got enough for a beer. But, he, but his life's desperate. He's the same age as you and me, David. And mm. is there any hope for these people? I mean, because I feel like sometimes I'm just, people say to me, you're wasting your time with these people, but I don't want to waste my time. With well, you're people. not You're not wasting your time in the slightest. And of course, you have to remember why people turn to drugs in the first place. It's a feeling of being lost, of not having any kind of uh, aspiration, feeling that they don't belong. And they turn to drugs and drugs become a big comfort blanket. And of course, once you start down that road, and particularly when you get into harder drugs like heroin, you you and, and heroin users will tell you this, they feel they're cushioned in cotton wool and no one can harm them. But obviously, as you start to come off those drugs, you need more and more of it. And then, of course, you have to turn to crime because there's no way you can afford those drugs. So actually, what these people need is someone who cares for them, who puts their arms around them, who supports them. But also the medical services need to do that as well to wean them off the drugs. But the other crucial part of that is to give them self-worth back again so that they can get into employment. Because the most of us get up every day because we enjoy what we do. We go to work, we earn money, we can buy supper at the end of the day or we can go to the cinema. And that's the bit that's missing. It's about self-worth. Yeah. What's your what's your take on levelling up, David? I mean, I, I, it really naffs me off, if I'm being frank. <laughs> and it doesn't even sound very angry with my voice. <laughs> but, but, you know, uh, this idea of levelling up is kind of, uh, you know, give the, the railway station a, a, a coat of paint or or put a few new buses in the town. You know, I, I, to, to me, levelling up doesn't exist in the northwest, it, particularly in where we are in Burnley. Mm. Do you think it, the, the concept's right, but the, the approach is wrong? I do. And also, it's just it's really badly managed. I was an MEP in the Northwest. And so obviously saw it for myself. But also, it's not just about the North. I come from East Anglia. Again, people think of that as an affluent area. There's terrible deprivation, particularly in the coastal communities that are completely ignored. We've completely abandoned our fishing industry. And again, this is about actually making Britain a place for great business where we attract investment that builds towns. One of the other big problems that we've got, and you can see that in the Northwest, is the destruction of towns, of communities, of all the boarded up shops, for example. So there's a lot of work to do there. So levelling up isn't about chucking money at regions because it doesn't do anything. You just throw money. What you have to do is solve the intrinsic problems there. And that, for me, includes things like ensuring the high street's safe, that you've got shops, that people go out, they talk to each other, because that way you build communities. Yeah. Um, David, I could ask you so many questions. Um, let's just talk <laughs> about... Let's talk about um, I, I want to bring the church in a little bit, if that's all right, uh, because you are an openly gay man, and I'm part of Inclusive Church, um, and the church has been in the news in the last week because of this uh, failure, in my view, to legitimise and legalise gay marriage. 
do you do you think the church is actually relevant anymore to uh, well to secular gay people uh, first and foremost but but also you know there's a lot of gay gay christians i know a lot of gay christians you know well what's your take on it david in terms of the church and, and as an institution and its role in society now well i'm a christian i was brought up uh, i was served as an altar boy in a church of england uh, church i sang in the choir it was very much part of my life and i feel very abandoned by the church of england i think it is a terrible institution um, whilst religion is still very important to me, the organisation and the fact is, it seems to me you've got a bunch of people who are running the, the church to suit themselves and they're not listening to their parishioners. And, and one of the things that I always say about this is I don't really understand why they've got such a problem with gay marriage when the greatest gift God gave was love. Why do you think they've got a problem, David? I mean, I mean, I, I, because I think they're hiding stuff. We, you know as well as I do what has happened in the church, particularly in the Catholic Church, but the Church of England is the same as well. And I think they have to confront it. And I think there's always a worry that if they lift the lid, it's what they uncover underneath. Yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, look, I'm not involved with, with the Church of England anymore. Um, but you see, I think the problem is we're seeing religion dwindle, particularly West, in Western countries, not necessarily in places like Africa, where I think religion's on the increase. But it has to remain relevant. The church has to remain relevant. It has to provide support and guidance and be there to help people through difficult situations. And right now it's not doing that. So um, what, what maintains your Christian faith? I mean, I, I, you know, I'm... I am in the Church of England and, and I have a conscientious decision to make about how long I stay in it or whether I'm prepared to listen to this rhetoric. But but fundamentally, is it is it that is it that concept of love that, that, that drives your Christian faith? Well, what is it? It's I just have an intrinsic belief and one that I've questioned a great deal, but also just in terms of the great opportunities I've been afforded, the scrapes I've got into, I'm amazed I got out of half of those scrapes. So, so someone has to be looking after me because, quite frankly, I'd make a rubbish job myself. Yeah, yeah. And 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 uh, again, this is flying by because I've got so many questions for you. But, but you you are part of. Uh, I want to ask you about the Reform Party, David, of which you are part. And and please don't be offended by this question. But but is the Reform Party something that is and can be taken seriously as an alternative to the, the traditional? The, the political parties i feel uh as you feel abandoned by the church of england I, I personally feel abandoned by the political system at this moment in time i don't feel i can turn pin my my colors to any political party so is, is reform uh authentic is it got a, is it got a future just just tell us a bit about the, your relationship with that well, obviously, um, it all started with the Brexit party. Interestingly, I didn't get involved till after the referendum. And we can argue whether you should have had the referendum, but they had the referendum and people decided to leave. The reason I got involved is I was so angry that essentially politicians were denying democracy that I then got involved. And that's how I ended up as an MEP. So Brexit was the first battle, which, by the way, is still not sorted. And the government's made an unholy mess of the whole thing. And that needs sorting in the way we've abandoned Northern Ireland. But anyway, that's a whole different thing. In terms of reform, this for me, I agree with you. I think the traditional parties have lost the plot. We now are living under a essentially what was meant to be a conservative government with the highest tax burden in 70 years that actually is making this country worse and poorer. And the poorer are poor are suffering more than ever. 
So I do think there's a place for another party. And you can see with Reform UK, it's actually almost goes back to those first principles of saying, we can make this country great again, but we need to reform institutions. Whether it's the House Service, the House of Lords is a very good example of something else that we need to reform, um, where we've got more people in there than we need. A revising chamber is very important. We need to look at all sorts of things in this country. What is interesting to me is the people who are joining reform now aren't all Brexiteers. So it isn't just Brexit, Brexit Party Mark II. This is people who feel very passionately, for example, about energy. Why are we obsessed with net zero at the detriment of people in this country who can't actually afford to put money in their prepayment meter? What we should be doing is providing cheap energy and having a long-term strategy. So I can see that. And Richard Tice and I, and I know you've interviewed Richard, it, it has been a very uphill battle. And at times it has been me and him. And we are fighting the, the good fight on this. But what is very good and pleasing to see is in the polls, we are now beginning to increase. And we are now getting coverage in the national newspapers. And that's been a huge problem trying to get them to take us seriously as well. But there's one other problem here, which is our electoral system. Because under first past the post, it is incredibly difficult to break uh, the, the, the current uh, deadlock that we're in. But if Labour gets into government, which I think they may well do, and they have a minority administration, they would then have to go into coalition with the, the Lib Dems, and the price of that would be proportional representation. At that point, it's a game changer. Yeah. And just um, just quickly on the environment, David, uh, am I right to say the Reform Party would be uh, in favour of, of, of uh, shell gas, this is a, this is something that you're you're passionate about, I believe, is it? The, it is. What do you think? The, what do you think the fear is about uh, shale gas, David? Just expand on that for me, please. Well, I think lots of things. So, for example, I I believe that we need to in, improve the environment. I drive an electric car, but I'm lucky I can afford to do that. I've got solar panels; they charge my electric car, so I'm lucky to do that. You can't do that in a block of flats. Um, but at the same time, we're seeing this ridiculous rise in our energy prices. We're importing liquefied gas from other countries, but that's OK because it's green. Whereas we're sitting on a trillion pounds of our own natural resource, which is sitting under our feet. So we need to get that energy out. We know we can do it. It would bring bills down massively. And at the same time, of course, invest in solar and invest in hydroelectric and nuclear power stations. Nuclear for me has always been, even as a child, when I grew up near Sizewell, was an amazing thing. The fact science can actually help us. But whilst we do all of that, the reason that fracking has been in such trouble is because the public are frightened. The levels of seismic activity were set too low. And in fact, the level... Uh, that they set it at was lower than a lorry going on the road outside your house. So we, why don't we do a test exploration? Why don't we see what one site can yield? That is what America has done, is doing, and that's why they're not in the mess we're in. And suddenly, and the national grid now is paying people not to use electricity. What century are we in? Mm. It is bizarre, isn't it? It is completely bizarre. David, we're running out of time, but I've got questions I need to get into. <laughs> I want to talk about... Um, uh, was it talk TV or was it talk radio? I'm not sure. So it's both, days. both. So we, yeah. So we go out on radio and on television. Yeah. No, no. I, I love these platforms, and I'm a bit of a flicker. You know, I like to. Um, but, but are you pleased with how that's going, or is the station pleased with that? It, it seems to be uh, on the increase. And um, yes. 
just say say how much you enjoy that role that you do. You you run the breakfast show for people who who aren't yet familiar with your show. Yeah, I do weekend breakfast. So uh, that's that very early starts on Saturday and Sunday. I, I start at, well, I get up at 3.20 and I'm on air at 7, which is uh, which is challenging. Uh, but it's great. I love working there. I have never worked with a nicer team. And the great thing for me is it's the home of free speech. You can say what you like. And so many, and I worked at the BBC for a long time. You can't think say what you think. Um, there are too many people wandering around with clipboards telling you what, the thought police telling you what you can and can't say. The great thing about talk is that we allow everyone to express their opinions and then people make their own decisions because we're all grown-ups. And so that's why I love it so much. I've been there almost a year, which seems absolutely unbelievable. I do another show in the evening, which I'm doing tonight, which is The Talk with Sharon Osbourne. Um, and then I also fill in for other presenters as well. So it's been great. I've really enjoyed it. And also, again, I can impart, going back right to the beginning of the conversation, I can impart health messages through it. I do something called Sunday Surgery, where we take a, a, a topic and we look at it every single Sunday, uh, and people call in and ask questions. I team up with uh, another doctor to do that. Uh, but we can talk about politics and what it means. We can talk about anything, and that's why I like it. Yeah, I, I do enjoy it. I, uh, Ian Collins has been a guest on on the show and uh, and and he's helped me enormously with the book and uh, really really I would recommend people take a listen. Do you feel there's enough room for everybody at the moment, David, on those platforms? Do you think it's sustainable for everybody? There's, you know, I, I've read of, of quite poor viewing figures for certain stations. Perhaps best not to name them, but do you, <laughs> do you, think, it, do you think it's sustainable? Um. The market will decide, won't it? I mean, at the end of the day, I think you have to make your offering fresh and innovative. We're actually about, we're going through a massive transformation at the moment where we're actually going to take all of our radio and put it into television. So we're rebuilding all our studios at the moment. So certainly from our end, there's clearly aspiration and uh, the will to grow it. And as you rightly say, some of the other stations I think are struggling. Very diplomatic. Um, <laughs> David, on a lighter note, uh, I want to ask you about, uh, you presented, uh, what was the ghost programme? Uh, oh, Most Haunted Live. Most Haunted Live. Oh, it was so entertaining. <coughs> do, do you believe in ghosts? So that's a really good question. Um, I, uh, for people who don't, who don't understand what that was, it was, a, it was a, the, the world's largest live paranormal uh, program. So it was three hours and we had a team of people who believed that they could see um, ghosts, um, <coughs> excuse me, and then we had scientists and historians and all the rest of it. And I, my job really was to be the ringmaster and to pull the whole thing together. So it didn't really matter what I believe. But the thing I would say is things happen during the filming that I simply can't explain. Uh, many things in life happen that I can't explain. And um, my my personal feeling is if we think that we're so clever and we're the only beings on this planet, I'm not sure that's entirely true. Yeah, I'm. I'm <laughs> I honestly don't know. Is the honest answer? Yeah, well, I, you're not alone. I, I feel that as well. I've never seen, never seen, nor experienced it. So, well, yeah, you see, I, I have. Yeah. So I have as a child. Um, and children are meant to be far more receptive. But there, I've got lots of stories that I could bore you with. But, for example, when I was 13, I'm sure I saw someone falling from a castle battlement. And when I looked into the history books that someone did indeed do that, and th this castle goes back to the 11th century, uh, I was driving home in my car after one of the shows, and I was I knew someone was in the car with me. It's so much so I got out of the car, checked the boot, checked the car, drove back to the hotel 
and one of the and Derek Akora, who was the uh, psychic medium, the first thing he said to me when I walked into the hotel bar was, "You what? You didn't come here on your own, did you?" And I said, "What do you mean?" And he said, "There was someone in your car, and I know who it was." Really? Gosh. So all of that stuff. Look, I don't know. I am an open-minded skeptic. But Derek, Derek was a legend, wasn't he? He was a legend. I really liked working with him. He was a lovely man. Yeah. And it was a real shame. Wow. David, I've really enjoyed talking to you. It's been lovely. I mean, we've covered quite a lot of ground there in 30 minutes. And I'm, and I'm sorry I'm hoarse. What would you recommend, Doctor? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, to be honest, you could go and spend lots of money on cough sweets and all the rest of it, but probably gargle with salt water and honey and lemon and all those things your mum and grandma told you. David, thanks ever so much. I really appreciate your time. Um, Pleasure. Thanks very much, Alex. Good luck with everything you do, and, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you.